0: That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, I'm speaking to Dr. Lisa Cooper, professor at Johns Hopkins in the Schools of Medicine, Nursing, and Public Health, and director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Equity. Our discussion centers on the challenges that the coronavirus pandemic poses to vulnerable populations. We also discuss how the field of health equity is critically relevant to informing the public health and medical response. Let's listen. Dr. Cooper, thanks so much for joining me. Um, You have spent your career studying equity and health, and now we have a pandemic uh, where it's very clear that the uh, illnesses and the challenges are affecting different people in different ways. From your vantage point, um, what's really important for people to know?
1: Well, I think it's really important for people to know that there are certain groups in our society that are at much higher risk of doing poorly during this pandemic. You know that we are all at risk, but we have uh, certain groups of people who, because they are already at risk for poor health, um, who will actually end up facing a lot uh, more struggles to, to, to stay healthy at this time.
0: So so who's on, who's on that list of groups that you're particularly worried about?
1: So this list, of course, includes uh, older persons, as we've heard a lot about. It includes ethnic minorities, people who live uh, in poverty or uh, have low wages and low income. Um, there are people who have a lot of medical and mental health conditions and people with Disabilities who really require a lot of uh, care, and um, you know, a lot of focus on their health anyway.
0: So, I want to explore a little bit why those groups of people are at greater risk from the the pandemic. And I don't mean the biological reasons. You know, it appears that older adults. Um, are much more likely to get serious illness and even die from COVID-19, but really the non-biological reasons why they're at risk, the social, economic, and other reasons why they're at risk. Um, where where do those start?
1: They start with the fact that a lot of people in those groups don't have uh, a lot of their basic health needs met on an on an average day. And so at this time, it's even harder for them to get those basic needs met. So things like being able to get food to eat, um, being able to have a safe place to live, um, or any place to live for that matter, and um, you know, just being able to get things like their medications and things like that, and other uh, services that they might need in order to stay healthy. So we have people who don't have those basic needs that are, um, that are being met at the time during their normal everyday lives. But now when we're all finding it harder to to do those things, they're having a hard time. People who don't make a lot of money can't afford to go shopping and stock up on groceries. You know, you know, people who are homeless don't have anywhere to stay inside and and be sheltered at a time when we're asking people to remain distant, um, to keep social distance and, you know, to shelter at home. So, those are some things.
0: So, so, those are really some basic, basic things. So, being able to have a, a place to be on their own and in a safe place, people don't have that. They're more likely to get, get COVID. If there's um, inadequate food, um, then it's very hard to, to be on your own. You have to go out and try to find food. And even then, you may be at increased risk of getting sick if you're malnourished. Um, let's talk about healthcare access. Because um, you know, there's a lot of attention to testing and the need to get people who are uh, sick into care as quick as possible, so they're not in the community infecting other people. Um, the different groups that you're talking about do you have concerns that they won't be able to access the healthcare system to get what they need uh, for COVID
1: nineteen. Yes, I really do. I I think people who don't have health insurance and don't have a regular primary care provider are gonna be struggling to figure out where they can go, where can they turn for help uh, if they feel like they're, they're getting sick and getting symptoms of COVID. There are people who are immigrants who are afraid, for example, of law enforcement uh, coming out to get them. And so they're gonna also avoid healthcare uh, at this time. And then, you know, so you have people, you even have young adults, for example, who don't um, frequently uh, see doctors who don't have a regular doctor that they can reach out to at this point in time to get advice. So you have lots of people like that. You also have people who work um, low wage jobs who are afraid to take the time off to go and get health care because they're afraid that they're going to lose their jobs. And so they might avoid seeking health care because of that.
0: I know you've done a lot of work on trust of the healthcare system and the relationship between um, uh, different communities and uh, their doctors and their their healthcare systems. You know, this is a moment where many hospitals you can't go through the front door. There's a special door now. You know, people are going to be wearing incredible protective gear. I mean, I think it's a going to be a frightening place for people who know hospitals really well at times. You know, how will that play into? The ability of different communities to get healthcare when they need it.
1: I think it's going to play a huge role. I mean, so here's why you mentioned that people might be intimidated by seeing all these, you know, barriers to getting into healthcare facilities. People wearing masks, um, people wearing hoods over their heads, all those kinds of things. But even before that, I mean, I think just uh, because of this sort of mistrust of Of institutions, not only of healthcare and um, research, but also of institutions broadly based on past experiences of discrimination and even current kinds of uh, uh, experiences of discrimination in the society. People may not even believe the messages that they're hearing on TV or on the radio. They a lot of I've heard, you know, people asking questions, people from these underserved communities asking questions about whether this disease is real or whether it's some sort of hoax or, you know, there's some sort of conspiracy theory around it that it was invented in order to um, make sit- the situation worse for certain groups of people. So people have their their mistrust of uh, even the news and what they're hearing about what they ought to be doing.
0: So um... Now we get to talk about what we can do about this. I mean, this is this is a very serious problem because if people aren't getting the message, if they're not able to take time off from work when they're sick, if they're not able to stay in a safe place, then the result is more people desperately ill, and the greater chance that the healthcare system that everyone relies on um, is overwhelmed. So there's a real urgency, um, maybe even a special especially uh, a special urgency now to really address some of these longstanding challenges. Um, What do you think can be done? Where do you start?
1: Wow. Yeah. So there, uh, there, it can seem completely overwhelming, but you know, I would say that um, first of all, it's important for those of us that are in healthcare and in public health to begin to reach out to people in from those communities to reach out to leaders of community-based organizations to find out what some of the concerns and needs and fears are and uh, to express our solidarity with them and to be sincere about that. I think that's really important. I think it's important for us to work across sectors. So we need to work with people in housing and work with people in um, the public safety uh, sector, work with people in the, the faith sector, you know use all of those uh, resources that are available to us to try to reach these groups that might not normally be coming into healthcare or public health, but might be experiencing some of the challenges we talked about earlier. And those organizations and sectors may have the ability to access those individuals and those groups uh, much better than the healthcare or public health sector would normally have. So I think it's really important for us to engage in those kinds of conversations uh, with those groups, and be respectful, listen, and, and and communicate very frequently and clearly with those groups. And even in many cases, use trusted agents. So not necessarily rely on ourselves as being the experts, but also you know talk with people who are from those communities and who are familiar with those communities and who have the trust of those communities, and have them to communicate the messages. Uh, around, you know, disease control and what behaviors people need to engage in and where they can go for help.
0: And would it also be uh, important to work with those groups to figure out ways to meet the needs of people um, that maybe others haven't thought of at this point?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, the they can help the health and public health sector figure out, how to get food to people, when, when where they need it and when they need it. Who needs this help? Uh, they can help help us identify who is at risk based on where they live or becoming exposed to this uh, disease. And then, you know, worse, even worse, like causing more people to become ill.
0: Now, the healthcare system itself is a special challenge because you can't really have visitors, you know, because um, they're really cutting down on visitors to reduce the chance that the whole... You know, hospital gets contaminated. Um, so there are people who may wind up in, you know, not only very uh unusual circumstances, but very lonely as well, very, very isolated. Um, you know, what what do you think healthcare systems can do to to address this? To be, you know, demonstrating compassion and empathy, you know, and making a connection with people who may be quite um you know quite scared and reluctant to to seek help.
1: Right. I mean, I think that's such an important point. and I think one of the first things we can do is to is to listen to people and is to show them that we actually care and are hearing their concerns. And um, you know, again, sort of um, I think reinforcing with them that that the policies that are in place right now are difficult and acknowledging. Um, what a difficult time it is being empathetic to people's uh, fears and concerns, um, validating that. But then at the same time, uh, letting people know that there are really important reasons for doing this and and letting them know when it is we're open or flexible to certain things that they might need and letting them know what other options might be for them to communicate with loved ones, for example, or for us to make sure that uh, they get Uh, the messages they need to get to the people they want to get them, that sort of thing.
0: Maybe this is too simple, but maybe things like if people don't have ready access to a phone or tablet to do, you know, communications, video chats, other things to really try to to go the extra mile to help people do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Offer to make a phone call for someone, um, to send a text message, um, you know, um, to show them, you know, their family members on on FaceTime or whatever, you know, Um, all those kinds of things.
0: Well, you know, I know that um, you have worked on so many different kinds of solutions to these challenges. I really hope that your phone is ringing off the hook. You know, I mean, I hope that people should be turning to experts in health equity at exactly this moment to help them um, unlock uh, new ways to make sure that these uh, really um, longstanding and unjust barriers to health um, come down for the sake of um, not only um, people who are suffering them, but really for our collective ability to respond to this pandemic.
1: That's certainly my hope as well. And I'm truly just honored and um, really committed to doing whatever I can at this point to really uh, move you know what we know about what are best practices for these groups of people into action right now because I think that is really what we are going to need to save lives.
0: Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Cooper, for spending a few minutes today to talk with me.
1: Thank you, Dr. Sharstein.
0: Thank you for listening to Public Health on Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharfstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen McCusker and Spencer Greer, with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.